0: Welcome to Gospel Bound, a podcast from the Gospel Coalition for those searching for resolute hope in an anxious age. I'm your host, Colin Hanson, and each week I'm joined by insightful guests to talk about their written work and how the gospel applies to all of life. Together, we keep looking until we see God working. Wherever you're listening, welcome. I'm glad you're here for today's conversation. If you swear that you never tense up When talking about race, I know at least one of two things is true. You've never actually talked with anyone about race, or you're not an American. If you talk about race with any regularity, you have the scars to show for it. Isaac Adams dares where angels fear to tread in his new book, Talking About Race, Gospel Hope for Hard Conversations, published by Zondervan Reflective. Isaac argues that if we could just hold our beliefs and also our tongues, loving across racial lines in the American church could become one of the most powerful testimonies to a divided and dividing world. Isaac serves as lead pastor of Iron City Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Before moving south, he served on the pastoral staff of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. You can also check him out as founder of United We Pray. I love his motivation for this book. He writes this quote, We want to raise a generation of children who are not afraid to confront the struggles of racism in our country head on. End quote. You'll find a wonderful biblical balance in talking about race. Isaac knows when to step on toes and when to bandage skinned knees. He has the shepherd's touch. To someone who refuses to see racism today, he argues. Even though we did not participate directly in acts of the past, we are in no way freed from living in their shadow. And to the person who can't see any progress in fighting racism today, he cautions that what's happening nationally isn't necessarily happening locally. In other words, be careful not to blame your church for what a different church has said or done. You'll alternate between writing ouch and amen in the margins of this book talking about race. Isaac joins me on Gospel Bound to explain blocking, race as a Velcro issue, abortion, cultural preferences, and the mission of the church. Is that all? (laughs) Among other topics, Isaac, thanks for joining me on Gospel Bound.
1: Hey, brother. It's really good to be here with you, man. Thank you for having me.
0: All right. Let's start off the bat, Isaac. Why even talk about race? Isn't focusing on race and especially the past Isn't that exactly the problem with too much of the church today?
1: Yeah, some would say so. You know, it's interesting, Colin, doing this book. This book is really, in some sense, a theology of speech applied to the issue of race. And the Bible has so much to say about our speech. It talks so much about our talking and what that's indicative of and what it reflects uh, and how powerful words are. And while some folks would be tempted to say, hey, we... Uh, you know, focusing on this issue is, uh, you know, creating the problem. Well, the Bible also calls us to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with God. Uh, and Christians want to be just. Any Christian, whether wherever they fall on this issue, they want to be just. And given that this is uh, one of the largest areas and kind of sectors uh, that injustice has abounded within our country historically, uh, it makes sense that there's a lot of work to do. And so long as we have work and uh, to do in that regard, we have a conversation to take up.
0: And one of the things that you wrote in here that I had uh, had marked, you said, could it be the reason many Christians believe racism to be dead is because we have little to no interaction with the communities on which it has taken its toll. Uh, one of the reasons that stood out to me is because I can relate to that in terms of where I live and where I've lived and of that, that issue of proximity. When you are proximate, obviously, when you experience it yourself, that racism, or when you're proximate to it, then it, you certainly get a different perspective on it. Um, now, why did you choose, Isaac, to frame the book around a kind of modern parable, of race in the American church today, and just explain a little bit of of the unique approach that you decided to take. Was that always your plan with the book?
1: Uh, no, it wasn't. Uh, it, w- it was helpful that it was actually, I remember it was the BDU and I was talking to him and, uh, not even about this book specifically, cause I've been noodling on the idea for a long time, uh, about a book on race over the years. Uh, and I was kind of fleshing out an idea. Was like, and I was using some kind of label of like, you know, this person is, let's just say conservative or whatever. He was like, don't do, don't use labels like that. They're broad and unclear. He was like, you know, say this is, you know, this is Mike and this is Mark and here's Mike and Mark. And so I wrote an article using that kind of framework and the article seemed to do pretty well. Uh, So I said, you know, there is something to story that's just inescapably powerful and relatable. Uh, and, you know, there's a reason Jesus told so many of them. There's a reason in Second Samuel twelve, Nathan approaches David with this story, and David is all in before he realizes he's the main character he's the he's the villain in the story. And, you know, or we, you know, we can talk about Elizabeth Wilkerson's *Warmth of Other Suns* this tome, uh, and yet it's so captivating because she tells it through the through the lens of stories. So it's funny when I sent when I wrote the draft of the book and sent it to you know people who agree with me and people who don't agree with me. Uh, you know, I thought it was kind of the second half of the book, the didactic stuff that like that was kind of the the goods right and people are like yeah yeah yeah, that's all well and good it's that story that that's where you got me and I and I hope Colin in the story what it allows me to do you can say a lot in a short amount of fiction that you just can't write uh in kind of nonfiction without taking a lot of a lot of words and what the story allows me to do is to represent a lot of different experiences and say things that I don't necessarily believe or own but That someone does. And so the story allowed me to accomplish that and really just, and really hopefully paint you in the book, paint others in the book uh, in a way that I just couldn't figure out how to get there without a story. I think
0: that approach is one reason why one of the best ways to describe the book would be pastoral, because it doesn't sound like a debate on Twitter, it doesn't sound like a debate on cable news. It sounds like every single church I know right now. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the people are people that I know. The conversations are conversations that I'm having. They're my family members. They're my friends. They're me. And I, I, I assume that's what you were, you were going for. But it, it means that it, it just gives the book a very different perspective than most of what's being written right now on race. Um, do you think that's a, a fair description? I mean, I don't I, I think other kinds of books are good, but that this seems to be how it's different in the landscape of what's been published lately.
1: Yeah, I mean, what I'm trying to primarily contribute here is a pastoral word for the moment. So the the race conversation has many prophets. Uh, And for that, I'm thankful. Uh, And, you know, some are certainly going to be better than others. And, you know, even pastors are to speak prophetically at times. But I fear we've reduced the prophetic task merely to confrontation and condemnation when the prophets also gave the people hope. So Ezra 5.2, it says the prophets were with the people of God, supporting them in their work. And so, uh, you know, I say in the book, uh, I'm trying to write to you as a pastor. And 2 Timothy 2.24 couldn't be clear. Uh, the Lord's servant must be kind to everyone. And there's no asterisk on that everyone, you know. It's not everyone who happens to agree with you or share your ideological perspective or your political party, but everyone. And so I'm trying to write to people as if they're my friend and not my enemy. And that's, yeah, probably, probably uh, the unique kind of perspective you're seeing of what you're getting is an extended pastoral counseling session through what folks broadly call the race conversation.
0: Yeah, modern parable is one way to, to talk about it. I, I think another way to look at it would be as a case study. Um, for anybody who's doing education, you know how the value of a case study, and that's what this, this feels like. And, and you could really set that up as something to be used in small group context, in in educational context, as a way of saying, okay, if you were the, and you set up the questions at the end of each chapter this way, if you were the pastor, what would you say in this case? Or if you were the friend or you were a counselor or something like that, what would you say? Um, I like the way you you put this. You describe race as a Velcro issue. Explain what you mean.
1: Yeah. uh, Often when I, When I teach on race, I also talk talk about, you know, race and racism. These are often Velcro issues in that so many aspects of life stick to them. Economics, housing, uh, education, food distribution, culture. You know, everything down to how we dress, how we speak, so many things. And this is part of the reason it's so hard to talk about. So one of the central questions I'm trying to answer in this book, maybe I would say the central question, is why is it so hard to talk about race? I think that question is as important as it is obvious as it is ignored. And if we just thought about that question, we would actually be better equipped to run the ra- the marathon of racial justice that we rightly want to run. Uh, so I'm definitely not saying talk for talking's sake. I'm simply saying, hey, if you actually think about the marathon before you know trying to go and run 26.2 miles, you'll actually last longer. Uh, because a lot of us, we want, so many of us want to maintain unity, figure out these issues, do justice, and I think that's great. And, but you can't even have a productive conversation with that person you dread seeing at Thanksgiving. Much less on Sunday morning. So maybe if you start here, uh, it'll actually equip you uh, to run better. Yeah, it's it's hard because so many aspects of life stick to these issues. And you see how pervasive uh, ra- thinking on race was. Whether it be in the mind of the realtor, whether it be in the mind of the people. It was just deeply... Uh, It was deep in the American psyche. It's just it's a part of how you see all of life, which makes it really hard to untangle.
0: You and I, of course, have uh, have a couple times gone around our our home city here of Birmingham. And and of course, if you were going to take one issue that would be definitive, it would be race in describing the dynamics of our city and its history But as we've talked about and as we've seen, immediately you're having a conversation about economics. You're having a conversation about education policy. You're having a conversation about the family. You're having a conversation about ecclesiology. And you're having a conversation about theology, anthropology, I, I just I, I I will be using that perspective as a Velcro issue, and no wonder it becomes so complicated. One one reason, one thing I also like about the book, but I was a little bit upset at you with, is that you don't <laughs> give it. You don't give us a conclusion um, I mean, of, of the characters, like you, they don't wrap up. And well, one well, thing, well, I, hold on, hold
1: on, before you disparage okay. me too much, yeah. I do give one conclusion. That's true. i was pretty proud That's of true. that conclusion. But let's keep going. Uh, the narrative... Well, I- the narrative is uh, you've always taught me Colin I thought this is, I love this line history is always more important than the stories we tell or uh, yeah. history is always more interesting than interesting. the stories we yeah. tell about it. Yeah. Well,
0: I, it's almost it almost reminds me, I don't know, you know, you're younger and everything, but I don't know if you ever had those <laughs> choose your own adventure stories. Yeah. And that's kind of what it felt like is in this book is okay, now how do you think it concludes here? Like who do you think uh, who who gives ground, who has new perspective, who recognizes their responsibility, who escalates things. And that did feel, I mean, I really wanted you to give me the happy ending, but it's kind of like we talk about with Birmingham. Sometimes there just aren't happy endings. And it doesn't mean there, I mean, there is one in the kingdom of God, but I just I thought that was an interesting approach. Did you think about playing it out and saying, "Oh, yes, this guy sees the light and he changes his views." And did you think about doing that? Were you always thinking, "No, no, no, I'm going to leave him hanging a little bit."
1: Yeah, I thought about it. Um uh, a couple, I mean, there's a couple, maybe just more honest <laughs> answers. One is this is the longest book I've ever written. So I was just worried about length, period. <laughs> so, so, uh, and uh, so, you know, if the editors are listening. I hope they appreciate that level. Uh, number two, I don't know that I'm skilled enough of a writer to pull it off. Uh, uh, but more real, I did think about it. Um, but here's the deal. It's exactly what you said. Uh, in a fallen world, there's not always happy endings. Uh, and I'd like what I'm trying to push people to do in this book is think about the issues. So I don't want to just spoon feed everything. And I don't want to paint, you know, everyone repents and they all sing kumbaya on the end. What you have is some people repenting. You have some people backsliding. Uh, and I hope people can fill in the story for themselves of saying like, it's kind of like, hey, I'm turning it over to you, reader. Go and do likewise. Like you, you've seen yourself in the story. Now, how do you want your story to end as it regards this conversation? Do you want to leave your church in a super divisive way? Do you want to confront folks you need to confront? Do you want to remain silent? I mean, these are all options before us. Uh, and and maybe one reason, Colin, I didn't just conclude it is because a right conclusion, a just conclusion, may look different for different folks, yeah. right? Yeah. And so I can't just say, hey, you know, go and be like Darius and leave leave or stay at your church, right? It's like, for some people, that's the right call. For some people, it's the wrong call. And that's the kind of nuance I think we have to appreciate in this conversation. And if we did, we'd be slower to attack one another on Twitter and uh, divide in such a way that pleases Satan.
0: I'm glad you brought up that example. That is a very good illustration of the pastoral dimensions of this book, and of how many different people from many different backgrounds can read the book. And so one of the things you dive into there is a conversation about African-Americans and among African-Americans about whether or not they should stay in predominantly white churches. And you talk about the level of judgment and acrimony that is attached to that. And so, I mean, you're trained as a journalist. I'm a journalist. And so we know that the way you get attention in journalism and in commentary is by universalizing issues, by saying, this is what everybody is doing right now. This is the black exodus from the evangelical church. Everybody pay attention, and it all has this specific cause. Well, there is clearly a trend. Nobody would deny that there's a trend, but just because there's a trend doesn't mean that that's the pastoral situation that you encounter in your church, is that a fair assessment yeah. of what you were trying to do?
1: Yeah, I mean, like, and you raised that question. Like, I, I, hopefully, one reason the book uh, would be helpful, Colin, is because I just try to answer the questions people are asking me as a pastor and that people are actually asking. And should I stay at my predominantly white church is one of them. Uh, and my answer, it may be frustrating, is maybe. Maybe maybe let's think through some questions, you know, is your church, uh, more devoted to a political uh, party than to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, that's something important to think of. How has God wired you individually as a person? That's something important to think of. Are you bearing with your church's sins as they're bearing with yours? That's something important to think about. And so, yeah, I'm trying to show people that, and in that, Colin, I'm I'm trying to also highlight there's more than one conversation going on. It's not just blacks and whites. It's not just Asia It's not just, you know, Koreans and uh, Chinese. It's not just it, there's intra ethnic conversations going on. And so, yeah, I try to look at that conversation to say if the only options for let's just take the one question we were talking about, should I stay at my predominantly white church? If the only options are if I leave, I'm a theological liberal. And if I stay, I'm an Uncle Tom. I want no part of that deal. That sounds like the devil's deal. And I think that's sadly what's being reflected more largely uh, in these kind of universal conversations. And I think that's why uh, we need to think about how we're speaking because we don't realize it, but we're unwittingly binding people's consciences on what they should do where the scripture doesn't have, have them do it. I mean, look at Lemuel Haynes in a much different racial context up in Vermont, pastoring a white church. I mean, this is just, this is what the Lord, I'm preaching Jonah right now. The Lord may actually very well call you to your enemies, just as Christ was called, you know, while we were still, while we were enemies of Christ, he was called to his enemies. So, uh, but the Christ-like option for someone else might be to leave, And be like, yeah, this is an Ichabod situation. This is not a a healthy place to be. And so we need to extend charity. We need to uh, let people make decisions between them and the Lord. But all of that takes patience. And Twitter does not thrive on patience. Retweets do not thrive on nuance, right? And so uh, Satan is, and that's why Proverbs is so clear. Whoever makes haste with his feet misses his way. And Twitter thrives on haste.
0: Yeah, let me continue on that point. Um, In the book, you talk about preferences, and we know that it is necessary for a good and godly and healthy church for people to lay down their preferences. I mean, we get that. That's just an important thing. In a church where personal preferences predominate, you have a host of problems. We get that. And at the same time, we also know that certain preferences are necessary for order. You have your preferences on music and I have my preferences on music and who knows who else is going to walk in the door with preferences on music. And you have somebody's preferences have to predominate in that safe uh, for the sake of order. And in some cases, certain preferences, cultural preferences may even be celebrated as a church's unique culture without any kind of problem. Okay, because we're all embedded in a culture. Put that all together, Isaac, and explain, how do you distinguish between the two kinds of preferences? The ones that you just have to lay down and those that you're saying, no, those are actually necessary or might even be great to celebrate.
1: Yeah, that's, oh man, that's such a that's a good and a tough question without a clear answer. Uh, but I mean, there's certainly, what we're basically getting at is look, First Corinthians 14 makes really clear there needs to be order on some level your church will have a sound regardless of what you think like and if you're like well we should have country week one week and traditional one week and contemporary well you're actually elevating the preferences over the content of the song which i pray through all the styles is jesus christ and so the church should be a training school in dying to self in teaching me how to die to self and this is why the kind of consumeristic mindset is so dangerous if you approach church thinking it needs to scratch every one of my, you know, every part of my back. Well, uh, you're approaching church thinking about yourself primarily when you should be thinking about the Lord Jesus primarily, then your neighbor secondarily, and then you, right? And that's not to say I'm not encouraging, you know, so go to a church where you hate everything. uh, And that's just it. I mean, you know, let's, as a pastor, Colin, I'm, I'm probably asking the question more of like, okay, life is short on this side of this under the sun, You're telling you might have a poor reason for leaving your church, but you really think you can love Jesus in that church over there with better music. And I've tried to like kind of challenge you on that and be like, hey, sister, hey, brother, I don't think that's the best reason. But hey, in your heart of hearts, you're convinced I will love Jesus better if I can sing in this particular style that I grew up with or whatever it may be. Then I'm like, go love Jesus better over there. Right, So like, uh, so that's where I'm like, what I'm trying to do there, Colin, is be like, we're in deeply gray waters. And so when we're, an- we're answering this question, how do we ter- determine which are, you know, just cultural things uh, that we are unnecessarily wed to or unwittingly or unconsciously wed to? Uh, I think what we want to do is think about, one, our discipleship to Jesus. But two, is this making my neighbor stumble? You know, and that's what Paul's getting at. In Romans 14, like, hey, this might be a part of your culture, and, like, I think it's straight, but your neighbor is stumbling. And so if this is truly making our neighbor stumble, especially those in the minority of the church, we really want to think through that. Because it could be Acts 6 shows us, actually, why is it all these type of widows who are overlooked in the food distribution? Uh, That's not just cultural, like, that's not just, like, a cultural happenstance. There's actual cultural prejudice being wrapped up in that that we need to look at.
0: This episode of Gospel Bound is brought to you by Crossway and Rediscover Church, where the body of Christ is essential, by me, Colin Hansen, and Jonathan Lehman. This book is a timely reminder that the church is more than just a live stream. It is an essential fellowship of God's people, furthering God's mission. Pick up a copy wherever books are sold or visit crossway.org/slash plus to find out how you can get 30% off and a free copy of the ebook. Well, let me give an example and maybe follow through and, and go a little bit deeper on this one. One of the reasons this comes up, of course, is because a predominantly white church may have a desire to become more multi-ethnic, but it may be hard for simple preference reasons for African Americans to participate in that church. And yet, if they were to complain about that in some right ways, one of the responses may be, well, I'm, I'm sorry, but if you're mature in Christ, you're going to lay down those preferences. And basically that becomes simply assimilation. And yet at the same time, We know African-American churches, primarily African-American churches, have their own cultural preferences that are very distinct and something that's celebrated in many different ways. So let me ask this question, and I understand it's probably not going to have a definitive answer, which is part of what I'm trying to illustrate here, but would you recommend for whites who care about all the issues that you're talking about in this book to seek to integrate historically black churches?
1: Well, let me clarify the question. Do you mean by integrate do you mean they come to us? We leave our church and go to them? What do you mean on that line? Yeah,
0: so um one of the things that I've that occurs to me often is a uh, is a statistical study that Joe Carter did for the Gospel Coalition years ago which was looking at the ethnic makeup of American denominations and it's very clear that the least ethnically diverse denominations are the historically black ones. And when you simply do the math, what you realize is that there's really not a way for the predominantly white denominations to become more ethnically diverse without people leaving the historically black denominations, which creates a a problem. (laughs) We can see pretty obviously there that that's not, it runs into the previous problem. So then the question comes back of, and you raise this in the book, should there be a situation where more whites should be willing to lay down some of their cultural preferences and attend historically black churches, should we be having more conversations about things going that direction on the multi-ethnic church conversation?
1: yeah that's helpful man um to, you know and to that question, I think yes uh, to that second question we should be because there's a couple there's a couple things going on here number one, I often find that predominantly white churches with the best of intentions want to be more diverse, but it often equates to diversity on our terms, meaning we want y'all to come to us. And Black people have been doing that for a long time. And so it can't just be, uh, you know, I want uh, I want to encourage a white pastor not just to think about how do I make my church more diverse, but actually how do I equip some of my people to go out and be ministers of reconciliation and actually you, white brother, you, white sister, uh, are going to be in the minority. And you're going to see what that's like. And I know like when I, when I teach on this, um, <clears throat> folks often, you know, they're like, well, I don't want to be a colonizer. I don't want to... Mis- yeah gentrifier yeah i don't want to be a gentrifier and i'm like look all of the black churches i know have welcomed people with open arms and that culture is so strong in that church your one presence is not going to change it just just relax okay (laughs) uh and so uh and i think that's a really healthy thing you know i remember uh Mark Dever once challenging people, Uh, you know, so I tell people when I teach this, I'm not telling you white pastor, kick all your white people out of your church. But I remember Mark once saying, you know, hey, are you driving past, I can't remember this was a sermon or something, are you driving past a faithful black congregation to come to this one? And why? Now, what Mark has modeled in that is he hasn't told anyone what to do. He simply asked a question what i'm trying to do in the book is ask a lot of questions and so you know it happens you know oh you know mark builds lots of relationships with lots of pastors he's teaching at this other uh um, local black congregation invites him to come do some workshops he's teaching and he looks up and he sees some of his old church members and he's like what are you guys doing here and they're like well well you said like we we actually we thought about it. and We're like, we've been driving past this church is actually a really faithful, sound church. Uh, and I don't mean that as like they're surprised by that, but it's just this is a wonderful church. So we come here now. And I thought that was just a wonderful little parable of like, hey, this can work uh, because we do truly have Christ in common. And I find lots of black churches are happy to hold that banner up high. Does that get at your question? No, it absolutely
0: answers the question. Uh, It's exactly what I was looking for. And then we can also add yet another complication or pastoral dimension here that even when you have the best of intentions and with everything you've said right there, sometimes there remain significant theological differences. And sometimes those significant theological differences cannot be bridged no matter what hopes you have for racial reconciliation.
1: Just to comment on that real quickly, that's why I say you have to be careful. You have to guard against, and especially, Pastor, of what I would say is idolizing diversity. So it's possible to idolize unity. We never want to rock the boat. Uh, we just declare peace when there is no peace. It's also, uh, you can also, uh, and that's what, I think happens is folks start hiring with all this theological diversity where it's like, and that just blows up and becomes a mess. And that's why, you know, I think I, f- I thought I first heard it from Piper. I don't know. And I know Shai says it too. Like hell is diverse too. We must remember this because people are like, we want our church to look like heaven. It's always, it's super diverse. Well, yes, but hell is diverse too. So there's not, diversity can't be the only factor. And what what's more on that is when we're only thinking in terms of diverse diversity we're only thinking in terms of superficial change now with that, can be actual change within a church. So if a church is really diverse, there's probably actually a lot of good things happening there. But uh, just because you have a college brochure does not mean, like, with you know, picture perfect diversity, does not mean you have sound doctrine. Doesn't mean even those people actually love each other. You know, people will say, you oh, know, look at Alabama football; they can direct, they can attract a diverse crowd, right? <laughs> and uh, you know, I'm picking on them and. Uh, <laughs> I'm like, yeah, have you ever – I've been to a game, right? I've been to T-Town. And uh, have you ever been at a game when someone spills their drink on each other? Those people don't love each other. Like, just... so that, like, we're I've trying seen to it with something... my own
0: two eyes. I right,
1: right. We're trying to do something deeper than college brochure diversity. And I'd actually – Have I'd take any day the predominantly white congregation who actually thinks deeply about these issues is actually doing justice in their individual lives. You know, this one's a teacher, this one's adopting kids, this one's a lawyer advocate versus hey, black people just come to us so we feel better about ourselves. Do you see? So there's deeper levels there, like you're saying. Oh, and
0: and what and and what good if if that racial diversity. Is everybody being the same age and holding all of the same political views?
1: Right. I mean, right. There, there's I mean, there's is, different
0: there's different kinds of, of diversity there as well. That's one thing I've 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 said is that sometimes you're you're in a situation as a predominantly white church where realistically there isn't much you can do. Um, there are a lot of reasons why it would be very difficult to make a change. And so you have to consider are there other things we could do. That could take us down this path of seeing the gospel of Jesus Christ high and lifted up in a way that would still make the world take notice, which is kind of the general principle of what you're talking about there of, are you diverse like heaven? Well, yes, heaven will be diverse in many, many, many different ways. And because of America's history, the racial issue is especially important. And we need to be prioritizing that. But I also find that if you're a white congregation and you want to grow more racially diverse, it's probably going to be hard to do that if you don't currently have any political diversity in your church or if you, have, if you have no class diversity in your church. It's kind of like the Velcro issue that you're talking about there. When you're talking about race, you're actually talking about many different things. And that shouldn't discourage you but it should make you want to go out and get Isaac's book and get some help. I got a couple more, I got a couple, couple more questions here, Isaac. Um, what about the mission of the church? You know, that's something that your friends at Nine Marks and Capitol Baptist Church are, are very you know, famous for, for uh, promoting and, and being vigilant about. Why isn't talking about race a distraction from the gospel, which we would have certainly acknowledge ought to be the church's top and I guess here's where the question comes in, exclusive priority.
1: Yes, a great question. Well, I think one one reason I bring up the mission of the church in the book is simply to recognize that, uh, and I'm, again, I'm writing as a pastor and, and really trying to do a lot of service for pastors, that... Uh, Two, let's just call them two congregants, two parishioners, might be arguing about a racial issue, not realizing they have very different ideas of what the mission of the church is. One thinks it's to make disciples, another thinks it's to lift up the downtrodden and marginalized. Now, right there is a perfect illustration. Both of those things are good things. Both of those things are what Christians should be about in some sense. Uh, But uh, with those different starting points, uh, we're going to have very different ideas of like, hey, what the church should do. So if I think the church should do X, I'm like, well, then the whole church should be in this march right and why aren't you doing this march don't you care about this issue don't you love these people didn't christ come to die for the weak and the oppressed and things like that and so that's really important to think about of the mission of the church it will just bring up those natural tensions
0: or if you realize that the that the latter is necessary for the former. In other words, yes. to be a disciple means yes. to care about the weak and the downtrodden. Right. Right. So in exactly. your you're making disciples, you're not just teaching people how to have quiet times and how to share the gospel. You're also teaching them how to care about the things that, that Christ cares about. I thought this was a good um, observation from you. You wrote this, For the evangelical, if something is not essential for salvation, it's often regarded as unimportant. Um, and there's this kind of all-or-nothing approach. And one of the things that I appreciate about the perspective is that's not just about race. That's also about baptism, something else that's really important, um, but it's not essential for salvation. Uh, so that's a broad principle that is not just about race, but a number of other things. We care about what God cares about, which may be supremely that good news of of his son, Jesus Christ, but includes many other things that he's commanded us to to do and to teach others um, to do. Likewise, I'm going to do rapid fire on these two questions because I promised them in the introduction and I don't want to skip them.
1: Let, let me just, let me just tie yeah. the last two things we talked about because you yeah. know you brought up that com kind of common retort. Well, Shouldn't the church just be preaching the gospel or something? And uh, I think the church should be, dec- of course, declaring the gospel and teaching people to obey all that Christ has commanded, which includes love, mercy, justice, the weightier matters of the law. And so uh, that's exactly why if we only regard the things of ultimate importance to be the things of only import, the only important things salvation decisions uh well then yeah we're not i don't think being faithful to all that christ has called us to do so we want to think we want to answer that question what is the mission because if the mission is to make faithful disciples and not just decisions well that is going to trickle down to this conversation i hope uh because we see jesus even dealing with the cultural and ethnic dynamics in his day and trying to be faithful with that okay rapid fire.
0: No, I love that. Okay, rapid fire. What's blocking?
1: Uh, so I talk about uh, blocking in football is when you when you block uh, an opponent so that your teammate can run with the football. Uh, or run with the caught pass or whatever it may be. And so what I talk about is, hey, predominantly white churches, if you have uh, a minority who's actually trying to do good work on this issue, uh, you, you know, people are often asking me, like, well, what would you have me do? I'm like, go confront the people who look like you and you actually take the hits so that that person can actually speak. Because I, th- I fear sometimes it's, hey, we want to bring in this minority and we'll let him take all the hits. Uh, for saying really hard things and you know where it's like no you're actually in the game and if you actually make space for him or her they can run with the football of a different racial perspective but they can't do that if they're getting tackled on the on the one yard line every play because as i said and remember the Titans, i ain't got no blocking
0: (laughs) if uh if you don't block and you are predominantly white church and you bring African-Americans in, you better hope that they're all Patrick Mahomes and can make (laughs) magic because otherwise they're just going to get sacked and all of you are going to be upset
1: (laughs) and it's not going to go well for them. Well, and I actually think that's a useful – I know this is rapid fire, but I think that's a useful useful, uh, metaphor, Colin, um, because black people are not super people. We're yeah. just people. Right. We can't... Yeah. Patrick Mahomes does what he does because he's this unique individual, but yeah. we're actually just image bearers like the rest of y'all and need the same kind of consideration. And it's that weird thought. I mean, that's the, the, so much the history of race, racist thinking is thinking black people are in this unique category, whether it be superior or inferior.
0: Right. Okay. Rapid fire again. One yes. thing... You could you know you've got the power to change this one thing that you could change on how the abortion and racial justice issues have been dichotomized and sort of pitted against each other. What's one thing you could you could change?
1: I would change people's assumption that the two issues are not interconnected. Okay. And I would I would well actually let me point it more clearly. I would if I could change anything in that regard, I would encourage people to see how that, in so many senses, is a focal point of the racial issue of our day. Yeah. And so when people are talking about, uh, you know, why are we still talking about this? Hasn't this gone away? No, it's just been pushed uh, into those neighborhoods that you never want to drive through, uh, and it's killing. You know, I'm again, I'm looking at Jonah. People who don't know their left hand for their right hand, and it's ironic because it's it, you would think it's that side that's always cheering for abortion, um, or cheering against it to be clear, um, and working against it. And yet, uh, what I say in the book is I fear that if we don't understand the racial justice implications of the abortion conversation, we're not seeing this, We're not seeing reality in all its terror. And I say, and the flip side if, we, if we're all for racial justice but we don't see how abortion is touches upon that, we're not seeing reality in all of its terror, in all of its terror because abortion is also a velcro issue and we're talking about we're, I'm not saying it justifies any kind of decision to be clear, but we are talking about different circumstances in which we need to think about, which create desperation and again, don't make anyone sin, uh, but certainly need to be thought through.
0: All right, I've got a final three, but one um, on the. I mean, all this has been personal, but one last question on the personal side. Just became lead pastor of a church in downtown Birmingham, Alabama, a city known for its, at least its history of racial strife. You're not from Birmingham. Why did you move there, and what do you hope God will do?
1: Yeah, there's a reason I picked Jonah first to preach. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And, of course, uh, I'm pretty
0: sure everybody knows we're both recording this from Birmingham right now.
1: (laughs) Yeah, right. We're in Birmingham. You know, man, when I first – it's been a long journey here. uh, And when it first came up years ago when I was first asked to come down, I said no. Uh, I said why – you know, on one hand, I truly thought I needed to grow more as a pastor under the tutelage I was in. I was like, look, I, I just need to grow more. But beyond that, I was like, why in the world would I ever move to Alabama Why? Who would do that in their right mind? And, uh, I, and to put it, you know, more seriously, I remember talking to my mom about it. Uh, my mom is my favorite. I love Spurgeon, love Grimke, love Dever. My mom is my favorite theologian, was reading Puritan paperbacks before they were cool, you know? Uh, and just, I remember talking to her and, uh, she's godliest woman I know, my favorite, uh, black history professor. And, uh, I said, hey, mom, I think I found this church. And she was like, that's great. That's wonderful. And my mom is super meek, too. Uh, So this was very unlike her. I said, it's in Birmingham. And she went, oh, Isaac. I told the Lord I would never step foot in that city after they blew up those four little girls. And my mom's old enough she could have been one of those girls, right? And so that actually, in a weird way, I hope not in a kind of martyr, you know, superhero complex or martyr complex Actually, encouraged me to be like, there is still gospel reconciling work to be done in that city, and if United We Pray is going to have a home in any city, makes sense for it to be Birmingham, Alabama. So let's just go and offer people the the bread of the gospel. We don't have my, we don't have many tricks up our sleeve at all, but we have the gospel of Jesus Christ, and let's see if we can't give this a serious swing at painting a picture of what the good news of Jesus can do.
0: Love that answer. I've uh, been talking here with Isaac Adams, lead pastor of Iron City Church, Birmingham, Alabama. been talking about his new book, Talking About Race, Gospel Hope for Hard Conversations, new from Zondervan Reflective. I do have a final three. Isaac, we'll do quick on these as well. How do you find calm in the storm?
1: By turning my eyes upon Jesus first and foremost. Uh, you know, that's I'm happy to have written this book, but uh, I, when I wake up, I try to spend time with Jesus. So it was one, of the, one of my favorite ministry quotes just talks about the difficulties of ministry and says, Peter, when he took his eyes off the Savior and focused on the winds, began to sink. Likewise, if we take our eyes off the Savior, we will too. So man, I, I try to make a lot of time for Jesus.
0: Where do you find good news today?
1: Just in terms of the conversation we're happening now, we're having now, I do want to be clear that progress has been made, and to deny that is to rob God of glory. And so, um, man, I find it in lots of places, uh, but I ultimately find it in Colin—the fact that you and I can have this conversation—and yeah. that the tide is is changing. And God never promised to be fixed in our lifetimes, so we'll just do the best we can to get the. They can get some blocking, get the football down the field a couple more yards.
0: Yeah, well, that's been part of why I was thinking so much. Or, or I started off thinking about what about our kids? What will we hand off in the in the church in Birmingham, Alabama? What will we hand off to our kids? And and like you said, I don't I don't think it's a messiah or a martyr complex, but some, hopefully born of hope to say I don't want to hand off to them the same thing that was handed to us. Um, but also, the previous generation didn't hand off the same thing, praise be to God, in the same ways. There has been real progress. And so, yeah, it's, it's that already not yet dynamic of the kingdom um, that's also uh, true of history. So, last question uh, What's the last great book you've read?
1: I mean right now I would say man having moved to Birmingham I'm still reading it is the thing but Tanner Colby's Some of My Best Friends Are Black is just I mean if you want to understand what Velcro what I mean by Velcro uh yeah I mean that thing is incisive I mean it's just surgical and so that thing is just I'm still reading it and I kind of he's re, he's writing about the neighborhood I live in I mean oh, it's yeah. it's <laughs> It's haunting. And so that book is, whew, yeah, that one. Yeah.
0: Well, you know, which is a good example of of a book where you, you realize history is worse than you thought. Yes. <laughs> um, and, but then you also, but then you, you look and, I'll, you know, spoiler alert, you get to the end and you realize, wait, but actually was progress <laughs> yeah. you know thankfully i mean he doesn't leave it um in a completely it's not a christian book of course we should we should clarify but he doesn't leave it in a completely hopeless place and the impetus for the entire book was president obama's election in 2008 yeah, yeah. and so he kind of starts with that moment of hope and then he projects back to say huh and thinks about kind of his strange life growing up in vestavia hills alabama
1: Well, he asked this this question that was, I just, I mean, and he's just a fantastic writer too. So like I'm looking at it just as a writer being like, man, how do you turn, like the movements through the, through the prose is so powerful. But he has this question. He looks at Obama's election and he realizes he doesn't have any black friends and he's like, but he, and yet he's so excited to vote for this person. And he's saying, why is it easier to vote for a black man to be president than it is to have a beer with a black man? And I just thought that question opens up a world of racial and neighborhood dynamics and history. And yeah, sorry, this is rapid.
0: No, that's good. And Isaac Adams, check out his new book, Talking About Race, Gospel Hope for Hard Conversations. Isaac, the only thing I wish is that the book had been written two years ago. But Mm -hmm. uh, praise be to God in his good uh, good timing and his providential purposes. It's out now. hope people check it out. Thanks, Isaac.
1: Thank you for having me, brother.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Gospel Bound. For more interviews and to sign up for my newsletter, head over to tgc.org slash gospelbound. Rate and review Gospel Bound on your favorite podcast platform so others can join the conversation. Until next time, remember, when we're bound to the gospel, we abound in hope.